Hello, and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini. I'm one of the founders of Forefront, and joining me on the podcast is the entire Forefront core team. We have Rich Chrisman. Hello. Zach Osinski. Hey, what's up? Josh Gaston. Hey, guys. How's it going? And Cody Schweikert. Hello, friends. So we're going to start off, we're going to dive into some things that we've been into lately, some pieces of art that have caught our attention, or uh, things that we think would be great to share with you listeners. And so let's start it off with Rich. Uh, Rich, what's been going on in the fields of art that you love? Yeah, so hey, everybody. Um, being that uh, today this podcast is being recorded on March 25th, which is uh, Palm Sunday, 2018. Recently, I've had the opportunity to lead a uh, Lent contemplative prayer gathering uh, weekly through my church in Pittsburgh. And so we've been taking about 45 minutes every Wednesday evening to have a time of some Christian inspiration uh, to sort of contemplate Lent and contemplate ourselves and the meaning of our relationship with Christ and the sacrifices that he made for us. And so leading up to Lent, you know, way back in January, I was thinking about what would be a great source of information, uh, sort of extra biblical, but still full of truth in order to use as inspiration for the purpose of Lenten meditation. And the way that we do the meditation in my group is in the way of uh, actually the desert ascetic monks. So we sort of contrary to how it's done in Eastern meditation, where The goal is to empty the mind the way that it's done in uh, desert monk Christian meditation uh, is to sort of empty the mind, but then fill it with the inspiration of truth and allow the Holy Spirit to move that truth around in your brain for a period of typically 15 minutes to an hour. And you just sort of sit in silence and allow that to to work on you. So while while I was working through this, I came across a book that was recommended to me by an Anglican priest that I really admire, and I highly recommend it to you. So the book is called Bread and Wine, Readings for Lent and Easter. And it's from a company called Plow Publishing. I cannot recommend this book enough. It is a series of short readings and essays um, for the Lenten season that's broken into sections entitled Invitation, Temptation, Passion, Crucifixion, and Resurrection. And these the book takes you daily through the Lenten season. And you can read a short essay for each day, going all the way from sort of the invitation to join Christ in his temptation and suffering, and then ultimately rebirth all the way up to Easter Sunday, which is awesome. And the readings, here's the best part for any of you that are literature, philosophy, or art geeks, or theology geeks. You know, if I I look through Bread and Wine, the table of contents, just on the first page of the table of contents, we have Oscar Wilde, Soren Kierkegaard, C.S. Lewis, Oswald Chambers, Thomas Merton, John Donne, Christina Rossetti. Yeah, that's only on the first page. So... It uh, this isn't sort of your your uh, your grandma's devotional book of you know niceties. 
It's uh, real, real meaty essays written by some of the greatest theologians and authors and poets from the beginning of Christendom. So again, the book is called Bread and Wine Readings for Lent and Easter. And I just want to read to you guys the, the introduction to the whole book is a very short poem by Jane Kenyon. And the book begins it with this. It's called Looking at Stars. And it reads, The God of curved space, the dry God, is not going to help us, but the sun whose blood spattered the hem of his mother's robe. And so at the beginning of every time that I crack open this book, I like to start by reading that little poem and just sort of centering myself. I think it's tremendously beautiful and uh, weighty and really shows us the meaning of, of how different Jesus Christ is as a divine figure than any other proposed God from any other religion. You know, Jesus Christ is the only figure in any faith that has truly understands the plight of man because he has been born a hundred percent man went through all the struggles that we go through and beyond and broke himself to the point of death to, uh, to understand us and to save us. So have a good rest of Holy week and pick up a copy of bread and wine readings for Lent and Easter. I got it on Amazon. There's also one for Advent. So I am very, excited to look go forward and get the advent copy as well so just wanted to share that book with you that's beautiful so as you've been going through bread and wine has there been anything in particular that's kind of stuck out to you or that surprised you or moved you um, or something that that you didn't expect to find in there yeah i mean honestly i'm not trying to just like ridiculously gush over this book but i feel like every single essay and the essays are really only like two, three pages long, typically. Um, but ed- every one has really made me think in a meaningful way. And that that's that was surprising in itself, because I thought it's a pretty hefty book. And I was thinking to myself, like, oh, I wonder how much of this will actually be, you know, worth it to me. And it, it just continually is awesome. Um, well, one thing that was super surprising and really encouraging and beautiful to me is each section of the book opens with the each subsection opens with a poem and the first two or the first three sections open with poems by Oscar Wilde and Christina Rossetti both um Anglo-Irish poets from the 19th century and I didn't know that either Oscar Wilde or Christina Rossetti were Christian um and even if they weren't yeah. even if they weren't Christian in a traditional sense the fact that they would write these meaningful poems about the Lenten experience is beautiful to me. I mean, um, here, let me read you the Oscar Wilde one really quickly. It's called the ballad of reading Gowl by Oscar Wilde. It says, and thus we rust life's iron chain degraded and alone. And some men curse and some men weep and some men make no moan, but God's eternal laws are kind and break a heart of stone. And every human heart that breaks in prison cell or yard is as that broken box that gave its treasure to the Lord and filled the unclean leper's house with the scent of costliest nard. Ah, happy those whose hearts can break and peace of pardon win. How else may man make straight his plan and cleanse his soul from sin? How else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in? Wow. 
And that's sort of the opening to the uh, to the invitation section of the book. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go next to Cody. Cody, what's been going on with you? What's some art that you've been experiencing? Well, I also have been digging into some poetry lately, like my uh, comrade, Rich. Um, I have been flipping through this old book that I bought at my old public library. They were just selling a bunch of books. I probably got this thing for a quarter. And it's just a collection of American poetry. I think it was probably published in 1970. So it's, it's uh, old stuff. But I was just flipping through and I'm natural. I naturally gravitate toward the shorter poems because I am usually in a hurry, unfortunately. And so it's, it's, it's low commitment, you know? So I started flipping through this book and saw some short poems and uh, I read several that were not only just fine, you know, works of art that I appreciated, but uh, the subject was spiritual, and I, I did a little research on one guy that's featured in this book, this collection, named John Bannister Taub. He was a Catholic priest, uh, 19th century, and an awesome poet, apparently. So uh, I was thinking I'd read a, a real short one here that he titled The Old Pastor. How long, O Lord, to wait beside this open gate? My sheep with many a lamb have entered, and I am alone, and it is late. So I love that. Uh, I love the imagery there, the, the pace of it. The, there's, there's almost a humor in it, and there's a heartache in it. Uh, and I, I just connected to this man that I don't know who died uh, you know, 100 years ago. I connected to that longing to be home that um, if you've been following Christ, uh, I'm sure you can relate. He, you know, God has work for us to do here, and this guy, being a, a priest, um, had work to do and um, was here on earth for a reason. But he had this this taste, this desire, this longing and yearning uh, to to be with the Lord. And so I I uh, just connected with that, wanted to share that with you guys. And if if we do have any other uh, poets listening, whether you uh, appreciate poetry or if you write poetry. I wanted to give a shout-out to a publication called Windhover, A Journal of Christian Literature. And um, I discovered this guy, again, from Dr. Ben Myers. He, uh, I won a copy of this at the last Forefront Festival, and he's featured in it. And he's a real-deal poet, so I would love to get published in this bad boy someday and um, would encourage you to submit some of your work. They accept all kinds of stuff. Um, it's, it's a Christian publication, but also a really fine publication, which is rare. So uh, I think they're, they're open to um, submissions until August. So give it a look. That's just uh, that's a bit about what I've been up to. Yeah, so what's the name of the publication again? It's Windhover. I'll spell it. It's W-I-N-D-H-O-V-E-R. One word. So it's Windhover, a journal of Christian literature. Awesome. Thanks, Cody. Yep. What's been going on with you, Zach? Hey, so um, this week I do not really have an insight into <clears throat> exciting things happening in the music world, but an exciting thing happening in my musical world is that I just invested in a new flute. Hey. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> That's um, 
happening and crazy. Um, I'm it's an American made flute out of Boston, and I started looking at flutes because I, the one I have I've been playing for for eight years, just about. And I just started my master's degree, and my new teacher has kept making subtle references to my quote-unquote equipment issues in my playing. <laughs> um, so uh, it was really, really time to just... Um, there were things with my old instrument that were just, just holding me back, and there, um, I was getting to a point where I was just fighting the instrument rather than growing with it. Um, so over the over Christmas break, I went to Boston and played flutes for five hours and ended up with two that I liked and picked this one. And I'm about to write a check to pay for it. So, um, yeah, it came here on uh, about a week ago on Monday, which was the very start of my spring break. So, like, it came in the mail and I got it out and I was like, oh my gosh. Oh, wow. I really don't feel like practicing right now. <laughs> I love your uh, love for the flute. It inspires me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, like it was really exciting. It was like all like super pretty and like shiny and clean. And I was like, I'm exhausted. And I don't want to play this thing right now. Um but yeah, and I, so like I have a lesson tomorrow to play it for my professor, but um, as I was slicing bread today, I also ended up slicing my thumb. So I don't know if that's mm. going to happen now. Oh no. <laughs> um, I, and like, I have a recital in two weeks, but it's, it's fine. Yeah. But like, oh my gosh, I, I know I sound like exhausted about it, but like, I'm like so over the moon about this instrument. So it's very exciting. I've got yeah, I've got to ask, was it emotional? Was it difficult to say goodbye to uh the previous flute that uh you enjoyed almost a decade with? Oh my gosh, yes, and I did not expect it to be. Like I um I pulled it out to to practice um the the day before my flute got here and I was like I had this moment where like I realized that like this is my last day playing on this flute and I like had a moment where I like I couldn't open the case because the last eight years just like flashed before my eyes and <laughs> I, I saw all the places I'd been and all the music I've played and all the people I've met and it was crazy um because I've had this flute since I was like 15 um so um yeah it was actually kind of emotional um but now that i now that i have the the new food in my hands it's like well yeah this this kind of needs to happen so um mm -hmm. there's someone else out there that needs it so yeah the story continues exactly <laughs> that's a really yeah. beautiful thing like the kind of connection that you had with that instrument I feel like is, is really special and it's probably something that a lot of musicians can identify with. Um, I feel like there are certain, certain like art forms where the connection between the person and the piece that you're, you're creating the art with is, is like especially strong. Um, and I think that's one of them. I mean, another one might be uh, certain writers and poets like with their notebooks. Sometimes the notebook becomes like a really special mm -hmm. item. 
but um i know for me like the attachment to like a, a film camera isn't isn't quite the same it kind of it still kind of feels <laughs> like a tool it doesn't mm-hmm. really feel like this is like part of my art uh, in that same connected way but it sounds like you have a special connection with the instrument yeah well it's funny because it's like the instrument just kind of becomes like an extension of what your voice is, you know, like, like I wouldn't say that I love the flute as just like as an instrument. Um, but I love what the flute is capable of as an instrument. And, um, like when an instrument is become like so pivotal in just shaping how you express your how you express yourself but but really like how you express yourself as an artist um i wish i had a better way to put that but um yeah it's it's wild and if there happened to be like any philanthropist out there who like uh, want to front this bill for me that would also be fantastic <laughs> elon musk is probably listening yeah there we go elon oh boy it's good it's good <laughs> gotta start a gofundme <laughs> I was about to say go- yeah well that's awesome so you're gonna get to play you're gonna get to play a recital with that for the first time in in two weeks yeah april 14th it's pretty exciting nice. very cool yeah cool all right well thanks zach let's move on to josh uh, josh what's been going on with you hey um so i've been uh i've unfortunately been kind of busy with work stuff I haven't had a good chance to do much reading or anything like that. Um, but I thought in lieu of having something kind of recent to share, I've got, I spend a lot of time looking through cool pictures on the internet. That's one of my, one of my big hobbies. Um, and <laughs> I just wanted to share an artist with you guys and with anyone listening. I believe he's Swedish. His name is Simon Stalenhag, S-T-A-L-E-N-H-A-G. He's been posting stuff for quite a while. Um, you know, I, I remember seeing his pictures online several years back. Um, but the the thing that kind of made me think of it again is that he's got a new book coming out in September of this year. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm looking forward to that. It's uh, it's always cool when an artist that you really like comes out with a new piece. We've talked about that before, that, that kind of anticipation. You know it's going to be good, but you don't know exactly what it's going to be. Um, so that's kind of how I feel right now. But to describe his style a little bit, it's it's very painterly, but it's actually all done digitally, which is how he got pretty well known as people were wondering, like, oh, is this guy sitting in his studio painting all day? But actually, I don't know if it's Photoshop or some other digital tool, but he, he does it all digitally. And it's kind of, you know, spectacular to see how realistic he is able to create these images to be, both in terms of the photorealism, but then also the stylized, you know, brushwork within the picture he creates. And then on top of that actual technical aspect of it, the images themselves are really cool because it, it combines kind of like, basically, he said it combines everything that he liked when he was a kid and started to draw. So there are dinosaurs and robots and, you know, big kind of retro-futurist industrial buildings all set in the backdrop of the Swedish kind of countryside and landscape. So very similar to Rochester, actually, lots of hills um, and trees and very lush. It's kind of an eye-catching style, and a lot of times there'll be something kind of central to the picture, like, you know, the one that he's probably best known for, and if you start Googling his name, the one that you'd see is a small boy with like a a mechanical-looking backpack on and like a grabber arm and then beyond the child is a big kind of like at at style walker or actually uh, you know i'm i'm uh, betraying my star wars knowledge an atst i believe the two-legged version um and then beyond that there's a police fan and so it's like this kid has kind of got this remote control robot that he's 
tromping through a field with towards a police car. And you can only imagine all the crazy stuff in your head that, you know, would have happened moments after that scene was captured. And a lot of the pictures are like that, kind of like a, a sort of slice of time out of this imaginary world that, that feels pretty familiar. You know, it's kind of like, uh, for me, it was a lot like Middle Earth, where, you know, aspects of it are fantastic, but then also it's always grounded in, in a, a realistic level of detail. And not everything in the picture is, is outlandish, only maybe one or two things at a time. And so it kind of lives right on that perfect line of, you know, acceptable reality and the fantastic. So the, the two books that you've got published right now um, are called Tales from the Loop and Things from the Flood. And it kind of describes this quasi-dystopian world. The loop of the, of the title of the first book is this big particle accelerator that kind of lives in the fictional world, world that he builds. And it, as far as I remember, it kind of like changes the, the time-space continuum in that area. And so that's why you've got dinosaurs um, along with people and robots and police cars. And then the new book that's coming out is called the Electric State, and that one's kind of a, de- a departure from his previous stuff. It's actually set in the United States, and according to the description, uh, it says a runaway teenager and her small yellow robot travel west through a strange American landscape uh, where the ruins of gigantic battle drones litter the countryside. It's kind of cool. It's, it's blending a lot of stuff that sci-fi touches upon now, like drones and warfare and kind of long-forgotten wars, but then there's also, I think, still that that familiarity um, with each image and, and with the overall scene that you could grab one and be like, oh, that looks just like Nevada or something like that. Um, so I think it'll, it's going to be really cool to see him bring his style to the American setting and something that we'd probably recognize more as the citizens and people that have grown up here. Yeah, so that's Simon Stallenhog and uh, just a cool book out there, a cool series of books, um, something coming later this year. And he also has a website too, so if you want to scroll through and see kind of the stuff he's working on or has been working on, um, it's all available there too. Awesome. I remember you'd, you'd tipped me off to his work before and shown it to me and it's, it's really gorgeous stuff and it's, it's intriguing and it's, it's really neat to kind of imagine the story within the picture. Um, and I think it, it kind of reminds me of, of Cody's blog entry in that way, talking about art that kind of invites you to look deeper. And I think his work definitely does that. Yeah, there's an air of mystery to it. Like it's familiar, but there's also something that you're not sure about, and it's not the kind of thing that pushes you away either. It's not like a, you know, like a kind of horror or gothic sort of scene where the unfamiliar is unpleasant. Um, the unfamiliar kind of is is what really invites you in. You're like, wow, I wonder, you know, tell me more about that building. What was that for? Yeah, yeah, cool. All right, so what's going on with me is uh, recently I've been digging into the special features of The Last Jedi. I picked up The Last Jedi on, uh, on iTunes and, and got the, the high-def download, and I've been enjoying those special features. We've talked a lot about The Last Jedi, so I'm not going to talk about the movie, but I did want to talk about one of these uh, special things you get with it. So there is a full-length documentary about the film that premiered at South by Southwest uh, just two weeks ago. It premiered on March 12th. And um, I think this is, it's a really interesting thing that that now like these behind the scenes documentaries are actually getting premieres um, as, as if they're a film unto themselves. Uh, but, but in reality they are. And um, for this particular documentary, again, called The Director and the Jedi, they actually brought in a documentary filmmaker they were thinking, you know, we don't want to just create 
a documentary that feels very kind of studio produced. We we don't just want to make something that feels like somebody, you know, an editor just threw some behind the scenes footage together and made something they call a documentary. We want to create something that's a work of art unto itself. So they brought in this guy, uh, Anthony Wonky, and gave him full access to the production from start to finish. So this documentary filmmaker was there during the entire making of The Last Jedi. And uh, Ryan Johnson and his co-producers and such actually wore lav mics the entire time. So they were actually being recorded just about all the time. And so it's you get to hear and experience these moments that otherwise would be lost to someone watching a behind-the-scenes material. And I think uh, behind-the-scenes features on films are, are special because you know, with filmmaking, it's this art form that brings together all the other types of art uh, in a way. I mean, film, of course, starts with writing. Writing is always kind of the art behind the art. You've got the writing of the script, but then you've also got uh, the art of acting, and you've got the art of, of course, filmmaking itself. Uh, and cinematography, and you've actually got visual art. You've got um, people creating concept art and storyboards visually, and then you've got the spoken word, and, and you have music. You actually have composers creating music, and so it's this kind of amalgamation of all these art forms, um, and so I think seeing a behind-the-scenes documentary about a film is is just a special experience where no matter what kind of art you like, there's something in it that you can really connect with. But um, some, some little takeaways from this documentary that I wanted to mention. You get to see how Ryan Johnson, the director, deals with expectations and pressure as a director. And one of the things that he says is that it's really important to follow your vision of the work as you're creating it. Um, that it's so easy as people give feedback and present ideas to kind of veer off into something else entirely. And it's really good to engage with feedback, but you still have to have that coherent vision and do what you know is right for the work. Um, and that's something that's really, really controversial. Um, but having a director of a film who has a specific vision and is committed to bringing that to life um, often ends up being a much better movie than one that's kind of made in committee, where everybody's kind of <clears throat> voting on what decisions get made. Um, and you end up with very vanilla films. But if you have a, a director who actually has the power to realize a vision and is willing to follow through on that, um, there's the potential for really amazing work. A couple other little things. Uh, Ryan Johnson doesn't currently identify as a Christian, I don't think, though he does have a Christian background. At one point in the, in the documentary, he talks about how he was inspired by C.S. Lewis's space trilogy for, for one sequence. So uh, you, you can tell that he's read that. He said it was one of his favorites as a kid. Uh, Pure Landra, I think he mentioned. And also just the way that he carries himself on set, I think, is, is a neat thing. And, you know, as Christians, we believe in common grace that even if, uh, even if you're not a Christian, it's, you can still be... Uh, exhibiting like Christ-like qualities. And I think it's clear that he does that because you hear the actors say things like, you know, he was never angry, never impatient, never rude. Like he was always like in, in good humor and good natured, even when there's so much pressure. And and Carrie Fisher says kind of humorously, he must have faults in other areas, but I don't know what they are. Uh, and so <laughs> it's just... Um, a really neat, I think, example to, to kind of look at directors 
who are doing these big projects and have so much pressure, but still carry themselves with grace. That's great. Yeah, it reminds me of the Lord of the Rings um, when the extended editions came out. There's a lot of bonus content in those too, and it's just uh, it adds so much to the movie. It's it's very special to be able to get that behind the scenes look. Yeah, I really got to get yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those those appendices on the Lord of the Rings are 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 quite special. And it's kind of funny. A lot of that stuff's recorded in standard def on like camcorders. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just walking around. And then you realize that, you know, the fellowship of the ring came out 17 years ago and you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm old. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crazy. All right. So let's get to the main feature of the podcast today, which is talking to Cody Schweiker about his blog entry that he just wrote for the forefront blog. This is Cody's first on the blog. So let's have a little round of applause for that, that debut. Clap, 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 clap. (laughs) So it's called an infinite aesthetic. Why the gospel never gets old. And Cody says, Artists can only pump so much creative energy into a piece. Our minds are capped by finitude and thus our expressive capacity. He says, I've observed these aesthetic limitations everywhere in every story I've ever encountered except for one. And then he talks about um, how he doesn't see that limitation in the gospel. So, Cody, what is it about certain works of art uh, that make them more... Uh, lasting than others. You, know, you talk about some works of art. Uh, you actually mentioned The Last Jedi. You mentioned the Sistine Chapel. Uh, a lot of stuff. And about how, how some of them, you feel like you can just dig into them. Uh, they're not infinite, but they still invite that study and that critique and scrutiny. Um, what is it that makes a work like that versus being fleeting? Well, that's a good question. And like most good questions, an incredibly difficult one to answer, um, especially for art in general, right? There are there are so many different mediums, and I wouldn't necessarily call myself an expert in any of them. So I, I can't I can't speak to the specificities of let's say photography or even painting um, or, or things of that nature because I think it it varies uh, depending on which medium we're focusing on. But I would say generally. Good art, rich art, lasting art, art that gives more, longer, I think it asks questions. And what I mean by that is uh, if you've been, especially maybe you remember back in school, you see a painting and, you know, somebody asks, what does that mean? Or you see like something like Jackson Pollock, you know, it's like people's response to something like that is, I could have done that. It looks like you just like threw a bucket of paint at a piece of paper. Um, and so we asked those questions like, oh, what, is a paint, what does this painting mean or a poem? What is it, what's the point of the poem? I don't get it. And I think when you start, when you, people start having those reactions to the art, I think it's actually a good indication whether uh, that, that type of audience recognizes it, recognizes it or not. I think that is a good indication that there's something there's something deep at stake in this work of art. The best poems don't have a clear meaning, right? Rather it's what is what is being dramatized in this poem, what's being dramatized in this story, what elements and what 
feelings or thoughts or questions or problems in society does this painting evoke? And so rather than, you know, a, a moral of the story, you got the three little pigs, you know, build a house of bricks, solid foundation. I mean, whatever that, whatever we, we were trained as kids to look for morals and stories. And I think the best art that um, we can savor for centuries kind of defies that expectation. Instead, it asks deep questions. And instead of making judgments, it allows people to discuss and engage, and it meets them where they're at, and, which I think the gospel does in a big way. So that, that's a complex one. I will say practically, here are two things, that, as I thought, practically. What, what helps art hold up? And what can we do as artists to achieve uh, an endurability as, as we create? And I think revision and working in a community are some practical ways to create rich art. If you, if you can read a book four or five times and get more and more out of it each time, there's a good chance it took the writer 25 times to write it. At least that's, that's the way I see it. Um, if I'm writing something, the best stuff I've ever written, which isn't much at all, but uh, I had to work really hard on it. It rarely comes out deep and rich the first time around. So it, it takes revision and working in a community. Uh, some of the best um, writing experiences I've ever had were in classes in undergraduate school where I was working with other students that were like-minded and uh, they we read each other's stuff, we gave feedback, we encouraged, um, we were critical. And uh, so I think those two things, revision and community, are some practical ways. But I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on that because that's a great question. Yeah, I, I agree, especially the revision is something that I was kind of pushed towards by a book by William Zinser, Z-I-N-S-S-E-R. It's called Unwriting Well, and it's a book my dad had given me back when I was kind of just, uh, just starting community college right out of high school. And, and revision is one of the things that he really recommended. He said, like, even the best writers or authors or artists, you know, like you said, the 25 times through to, to get it to the point where it's worth rereading, that's definitely true. They don't just sit down, write something, and walk away and say, yep, that's perfect, I'm done. Part of the craft is, is revisiting and being critical of yourself. Um, so, yeah, I think absolutely to echo that on, on revision, I think it's a very important part of making our art stand out and, and making it worthwhile. Didn't you write a post about that, Josh? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> okay, so thank you, sir. Sorry, you can give a shameless plug for your, your blog post. <laughs> Com comparing, consuming, revising. Check it out on the ForefrontFestival.com blog. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't remember the title, so I didn't want to try and just say, like, I think there's a post out there somewhere. You can look through all of them to find it, so, so thank you. <laughs> Along that note, uh, Isaac Dietz, who's a writer-director, attended Forefront 2017 and is actually on our advisory board. Uh, one of the things that he says somewhat humorously is that he thinks the first five years of a filmmaking career shouldn't be on YouTube because it's all just going to be <laughs> terrible. Um, so <laughs> he's like, don't, don't, you know, don't make public all of your first like tests and like, you, you know, it's going to take time to be able to get your work to a point where you're really proud of it. And um, I, I think that's, that's kind of an important point when we're looking at other art that we might have certain pieces of art that we love and that really impact us. And it might seem like the person behind it is just a genius and it just kind of popped out of them. 
But if you look at it, there's a story behind that piece of art. And that person went through so much work to get to that point, not only working on that piece of art, but just working on the craft as a whole, that they've, they've had their lifetime of getting to that point. And that's, that's invisible to us the first time we experience it. So I think that's, it, it can be really deceiving when we see something awesome. We have to realize like, man, this took a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like just to touch on Tolkien again quickly, his, one of his early stories, Rover Random, it's not bad, but it's also, it's not nearly as good as Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. Um, so that's something mm-hmm. I always think of when I compare myself to his ability is to say like, hey, one, he did actually revise Lord of the Rings a lot. Two, you know, he didn't even start with Lord of the Rings. He had other stuff that he'd worked on for, for years before that, you know, he was probably very proud of and, and was a good accomplishment at that time. But, you know, it doesn't doesn't hold up nearly as well. Um, and it's because of that kind of that that process of becoming an excellent artist is you've got to just keep making until it starts uh, until it starts feeling really good. Mm-hmm. So, Cody, in your in your entry, you talk about these awesome pieces of art, but you say that ultimately there's a, a finite nature to them, that, that you kind of come to a point where there's an end. And there's one story that that's, that's not the case with. Um, and I think, Rich, you had some thoughts about this. What, what, what did you want to talk about in regards to the gospel? Yeah, I actually had a question while I was reading it. Uh, something that, and I loved it, by the way, but something that kept uh, sort of popping into my mind is I definitely wholeheartedly agree with you, Cody, that there's nothing that's been more impactful and more emotional to me than the gospel. And, you know, sometimes I'll be listening to music or like reading something, you know, about the gospel and about Christ and whatnot, and it, it will just like bring me to tears. So I, I feel that, but I, I sort of have a question for you, which is how would you respond and to any of the guys on the podcast right now too, for people that don't share that like understanding and love of the gospel that we do, that might say, they might argue not only that the gospel, you know, will never get old, but they might even say that the gospel is already old for them. You know, I I have conversations with people that will say like, oh, yeah, I've heard the Jesus story a million times and it never really gets to me and it doesn't get to me anymore or, you know, or something like that. And I think that that's really difficult and like painful for me as someone who, you know, I, I really do think that my life revolves around my understanding of the gospel and it's power in my life. But other people don't share that. So I guess to summarize all this. What what would you say to someone who would sort of come back after reading your blog post and say, yeah, that's nice and all, but the gospel doesn't really move me. The gospel's already old for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is an important question uh, for artists and for Christians and for non-Christians for that matter. So uh, I love this question. On a, at a, first of all, let me just say a disclaimer, a philosophical level. I don't believe there are ways to argue or you, you, can't, you can't force someone to admit that a sunset is beautiful. And I think it's similar uh, with the gospel. Um, I, I think the Lord needs to open eyes and um, to help us see by the power and presence of his Holy Spirit to help us see his glory and the glory of the gospel. So uh, that, that's a doctrinal matter. Um, and so first of all, I would say at a 10,000 feet kind of perspective that 
that's a hard conversation to have because uh, God's got to do his work in that. But practically, I've got, I've got four things. If I'm talking to somebody and they say, you know, you wrote this whole you wrote this whole blog about how beautiful the gospel is, but I don't think it's beautiful. And so I, I, here's four things. Here's how I would uh, go about this. First, I'd say, that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Can I ask why you don't find it compelling or maybe what stories or art you do find compelling and why? In, in this, uh, this question for me is um, something I, I really try to value in my ministry is listening. I don't think enough people listen, and I think when people are listened to, uh, they feel cared for, and I think that's a great way to uh, be an ambassador for Christ and to represent Christ because Christ cared about people. And so rather than uh, jumping into some sort of philosophical debate um, and trying to argue and, and prove your points while why you're right and they're wrong, uh, I, try to li- I try to listen first. Um, so I would ask them that question. Uh, ask them just to share more about that and genuinely listen. Two, I would ask them how familiar they are with the Bible. It's easy, especially in the United States, to, to know, oh, Jesus died died on the cross for my sins, right? It, there's a good chance most people in the United States have heard a really basic story of Jesus. But that's the problem, is they've heard a really basic, superficial, incomplete uh, rendition of the story. So I would ask them, how familiar are you with the Bible? Have you given it, would you say you've given it an honest, fair chance by studying it personally? And then I, I love this question, uh, just because it's, it, not, not a, it's not a, a quiz or me trying to make someone look stupid, but I love asking this question. Would you explain to me what you understand as the gospel? Um, because they, they act, may actually think they know what the good news is, uh, but they may actually not know it. And um, I'm, I'm very surprised at how, um, how incomplete um, many people's knowledge is of the gospel, not because they're stupid or I'm better than them, but just because it's a complicated story, right? And so that's two. Point three, I would gently challenge them, uh, depending on how open I sense they are, if they're just looking to fight with me, then I'm just going to love them and listen to them and uh, engage them. But, but if they do seem genuinely curious, but they just haven't been captivated by the gospel like I have, then I would gently challenge them to pray and ask God to help them understand the gospel at a deeper level. You know, you can say one of those prayers like, God, if you're even out there, if you even exist, uh, would you help me to know you? And I think when, uh, when people are honestly start asking that question, it's, it's evidence that God is already pursuing that person. Um, and I love, I love what uh, the Lord says in Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so I might even share that passage with them. Uh, finally, the fourth thing, um, after that conversation, um, I, I would go. I would go on my own way, and I would pray for that person personally, and uh, ask the Lord to continue to pursue them and to use uh, the conversation I had with them to change their heart. And it's one thing to have a head knowledge, right? You can grow up in church your whole life and not know the gospel at a deep level. Um, so we need the eyes of our heart opened up uh, in order to see the gospel. So. That's, that's my response to that question, but uh, if you guys have thoughts on that, I'd love to hear that too. That's a beautiful response. I just want to say that was a, that was a much deeper and well-rounded response than I think I was ready for. So well done, sir. 
Well, thanks. I love I love your second point, Cody, about asking them about their understanding of the gospel. Uh, what like what do you understand the gospel to be? And uh, it reminds me of something that Barry Cooper says. Uh, he says that when people tell him, "I don't believe in God," he asks them, "Well, which God don't you believe in?" And, and it kind of invites <laughs> them to explain their understanding of God. And and he said that often when they hear about the true God, like that, that's the kind of God that, man, if if you knew him, you would find him beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think that this can be, and I'm not. Uh, shrinking uh god by making this comparison i hope but it reminds me of situations where uh, and those of you who have been paying attention to the podcast know that i'm a huge fan of abstract art of really any kind but um in sort of my side hustle of being an evangelist of abstract expressionism i've come across um a lot of people who will argue you know that just right off the bat that abstract expressionism, you know, in painting or in theater or whatever is not beautiful. It's, you know, cheap and, you know, whatever. And I've seen many times people who come into the situation without an understanding of what abstract expressionism is, will jump the gun and say like, this is beautiful. This is weak, et cetera, et cetera. And then after people have really been like honest with themselves and taken a good look at abstract expressionism as a genre. And when they take a look at the artists and their motivation and then the pieces themselves, I've seen a lot of people completely change their minds and say like, wow, I didn't understand this and I didn't like it. And now that I know where where this is coming from and what the expression really is, I'm sold. I find it really beautiful. And I think that, um, I think that that in, in the same way that I've seen that happen in people's perception of art, I think that can happen and does happen every day with the gospel as well. Mm-hmm. And just to go off of that, um, something like abstract art, you know, like people, one reason that people are put off by it is that because in many cases it requires more of you as a viewer. And, you know, people can look at like, something like starry night and be like, Oh, that's just, that's so nice. That's so pretty. That's so, that's so captivating or whatever. And not to belittle Van Gogh or his work, but like, I feel like people can be, you know, we as people can be, you know, repelled by the gospel by Jesus because we feel like he comes with all these caveats and we don't want that. We just want something that's nice. That's palatable. That's easy to take in. But what I think we as humans fail to realize is that the world we live in and like our creator is just so much more complex than niceties than things that are that make us feel good you know that is so true yeah and another piece of that is that i feel like some great pieces of art are under the radar enough that the people who experience them feel a need to really understand them and appreciate them and i think with with the gospel you know fortunately jesus is proclaimed far and wide 
But but the name of Jesus and the idea of Christianity is is everywhere in both good and bad ways. So you hear the name of Jesus when someone stubs their toe or on the street corner or reverently in church. And so everybody has an opinion about Jesus, right? And, and not everybody feels like they have to study Jesus in order to have an opinion about him. And I think that that study is merited and necessary. Everyone's a critic. <laughs> is that a criticism, Zach? <laughs> it's a true true statement in more ways than one. Yeah, kind of similar to what Zach was saying with, with some art kind of, you know, it needs more from the viewer in order to give something back to you. Um, what I was kind of wondering, Cody, is what are your thoughts on how, you know, like, I, I feel like part of why the, the gospel might be divisive if the person does have a decent idea of what it is, I feel like the gospel challenges you and, and kind of pulls you to a level that not only is higher than other art, but might be unattainable on purely human effort. So, you know, that's kind of like the, the benefit and the difficulty of it is that in order to really get everything out of the gospel, you can't actually just walk up by yourself. You need God's help there as well. So what are your thoughts on how that kind of impacts people understanding? Like, do you think that that challenge is what people are repelled by? Or do you think that maybe it's more just more a lack of knowledge? I guess what I'm really asking is, is it that people, like if, if someone really understands what the gospel is, do you think that they could still kind of push back against it? Um, and again, that's one of those unfair questions that's going to that's gonna be difficult to uh, to answer. But I'm curious on your thoughts on, on that, of, of how it asks more of us, but how it also can give infinitely more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Um, as far as uh, one comment you made there about uh, even when we do understand the gospel, we can push back on it. And I think uh, if you can try to think of the most devout, faithful Christians you've known, I mean, they'll tell you, because they're humble, hopefully, they'll tell you that they're all the time pushing back on this story. And um uh, you know, Paul says that we're at war with each other. The flesh and the spirit are at war with each other. And so uh, there's always pushback, whether, you know, we really get the gospel or whether we have superficial knowledge of it or whether we've ever heard of Jesus before. There's always pushback. And uh, as far as the, the Bible and the story, the gospel being divisive and polarizing, uh, one thing I mention in the blog is this this fact, I think, that if the Bible just called itself a piece of literature, right? If, if, you know, the introduction was, all of this is just uh, for pure literary entertainment, none of it's true, then I think it would be universally praised as the greatest masterpiece of art that ever was. I think the very, the, the very richness of it would cause people to wonder if there were a divine writer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the the problem, of course, for many people is that there's no such introduction. The Bible claims to be historical reality, and that is polarizing. As far as stories go, different types of stories provoke different responses and require varying degrees of effort to grasp and receive, right? So you have a fictional novel, um, and that can be a laid-back read as far as it allows you to escape from reality. But then you pick up a, a memoir or a piece of nonfiction. And because of its medium, um, it inherently carries more weight behind it, right? It requires more 
energy and emotional investment to read and process it and engage with it. Uh, the reality of that genre just generally requires more energy and can leave a deeper impression on us because we're forced to come to grips with its impact on our lives. It, you know, you go even further. You read a story in a history textbook, and um, whether you've read that story or not, it might well influence, change your very way of life. And so that, that's where you get to the Bible. It's historical. It's instructive. There are commandments. It's absolute, and it's truth claims. So it's this, it's this ironic thing, which is part of the aesthetic richness, in, in my mind, where uh, the Bible simultaneously offers you life for free by grace, and it demands you lay your life down in surrender at the feet of the protagonist. So it's, a, it's this crazy thing. Um, it certainly shouldn't surprise us that people uh, don't like the gospel. Um, the gospel itself uh, tells us that that's how it's going to go down. So Jesus said, uh, he who has ears, let them hear. So I think that is, uh, that is important to keep in mind when, when thinking about this kind of thing. Yeah, that's really well said. I especially like the point about um, even if a devout Christian will have things where they push back against the gospel. You know, I, I wasn't kind of framing it in my mind in in the sense that, like, you know, talking about someone who's actually already a Christian, but when you brought that brought that up, it kind of connected all the dots for me, so that's a, that, that helped a lot. Great. Yeah, that, that was great, Cody. Um, one of the ways that I think about this sometimes is, you know, we talk about how the story of the gospel is present in so many of the stories that we love. And <laughs> I, I think the, the difference isn't that it's, uh, more inspiring per se, because if I'm honest, there are some fictional stories I love that that do inspire me, and they actually help like guide my actions. Like I might be braver or more courageous because of some of the fictional heroes that I've read about, and so those fictional heroes actually do impact my life. Um, but if I'm actually honest about those, I have to say the only reason that that fictional characters can impact my life is if there is actually truth to courage and to honor and to bravery. There has to be something real behind that. Um, if there mm -hmm. is no life after death, if there is no saving grace, if there is no reason to have morality, um, if there is no reason to be kind, if love is not really the heart of the universe, then all of these fictional stories are leading me wrong. It's all just a lie. And it's only if the gospel is true, and it's only if there is good and evil, and if there is a, a benefit to following the right path, and there is life after death, it's only if all that is true that that really unlocks any of the goodness of the fiction that I love. And so mm. in that way, the, the gospel really is the center of it all. And the, and the gospel needs to be true for the rest of it to matter. Mm. Well said, Nate. Well, thanks so much, Cody. Uh, I loved reading your entry. I think it's beautiful. And uh, if any of you out there haven't read it yet, you can see it on forefrontfestival.com slash blog. It's called An Infinite Aesthetic, Why the Gospel Never Gets Old. So thanks so much, Cody, for, for writing that and for talking about it. 
Um, and thanks to, to Rich and Zach and Josh for, for being on the podcast today. So if any of you out there read Cody's entry and you loved it, leave a comment on the entry, tell them you loved it. If you didn't love it and you disagreed with them, go ahead and leave a comment. You already have a four point plan of how he's going to respond to you, but leave a comment <laughs> anyway <laughs> and, uh, and let us know what you thought. Please uh, subscribe to the podcast and uh, stay tuned for, for more episodes in the future. With that, this is the Forefront Festival team, and have a great rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Adios. Peace. See ya. Bye-bye.